This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alexandra Ortolia-Baird, a host of the channel, and today I'm joined by Devin Vartia to discuss his new book, The Colour of Equality, Race and Common Humanity in Enlightenment Thought, published by University of Pennsylvania Press in 2021. Devin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. This is a really, really exciting book um, that I think has a huge amount to offer listeners um, from across a wide variety um, of disciplines. But before we start digging into to the content of The Color of Equality, Devin, I wonder if you could tell listeners um, a little bit about yourself and how you came to work on this topic of race and common humanity in Enlightenment thought. Sure. Um, so I guess the, um, uh, the deeper origins of uh, this book lie in um, my time as an undergrad at McMaster University in Canada, near where I'm from. Um, and um, I took a, um, an interdisciplinary uh, bachelor program called Arts and Science. And when I first started that program, I was actually more interested in the natural sciences. Um, um, but I was quickly just very drawn to the exciting questions that were being asked and the discussions that we were having in our humanities and social sciences course courses. And um, we had, uh, it was a very uh, kind of old school, traditional um, uh, curriculum in, in certain ways. I mean, in the sense that one of the courses that I liked the most was called Western Civilization, which is, of course, you know, not something that, you know, isn't really, you know, it's kind of falling uh, uh, by the wayside uh, now. Um, but when, during that course, I mean, I, I, I was just so fascinated by um, the, the place of the Enlightenment in uh, European or Western uh, history. And um, I was just really taken with the, the promise of emancipation that Enlightenment held for, for people. And um, that really just captured my imagination as an undergrad, uh, such that by the time I started my master's degree, which I did at Utrecht University in the Netherlands, um, and also my PhD at Utrecht University. Um, I was just elated when I um, heard a lecture from um, a scholar named Steve Stuermann, who became my um, uh, doctoral advisor. Um, he gave a lecture on the uh, contradictory legacy of the Enlightenment in terms of uh, a very forceful notion of equality at the same time that Enlightenment thinkers you know, had invented uh, what he calls uh, modern discourses of inequality, of which race is, is a very prominent one. And that just, you know, he, he's a very eloquent speaker. And he, um, after he gave his lecture, I was just like, that's it. That's, 
that's what I have to do my my research on. And I at the time I didn't know that I I didn't have any plans actually even to do a PhD, but I I just really fell in love. I mean, I, university had been just such a uh, an eye opener for for me. I came from a, a rural uh, conservative uh, area of Canada and family as well, and and it was just such a uh, an opening for me. The undergrad and then the masters even more so, and and so I just it just really. Um, uh, it just all sort of came together so nicely. This this advisor, the university, um, the topic, um, um, and um, and and yeah. So then, uh, so, so that became my my uh, the topic of my PhD research, um, which I did over the course of about four and a half five years at Utrecht University, um, and then that that uh, was polished into <laughs> into this book um, during my time as a postdoctoral fellow at the École des Hautes Études en Sciences Sociales in Paris. Um, after which I began as an assistant professor at Utrecht University. So um, that's where I've been working for uh, just over a year now as assistant professor in, in political history uh, in the history department. So, um, yeah, so hopefully that gives a bit of a sense of sort of where where this came from and why I'm so excited about it. And it's interesting that you mentioned this this interest that you had in the natural sciences, because that certainly feels like it resonates um, within the book a little bit. I think you can see some of those threads um, clearly crossing over between social and natural sciences. Um, yeah. Oh, good to hear. <laughs> no, certainly. Um, I just want to kind of offer to, to listeners just a forewarning before we we start jumping into to the actual content of the book that there will be the use of, of some examples of, of historic racialized language um, within this interview. And just to kind of note that this will purely be used in reference to verbatim quotations uh, from Enlightenment writings and that these will be contextualized. But we just wanted to, to make that clear from the start. So on that note, Devin, what I'd like to do is, is kind of touch upon where you start with the book. And that is that you start with a problem. And that problem mm -hmm. is that thinkers of the Enlightenment, um, and I quote here, they politicized the concept of equality while simultaneously making the naturalization of inequalities between Europeans and non-Europeans thinkable. Now, for those who are perhaps a little less familiar with this tension, or we might even say perceived tension, could you perhaps mm -hmm. just start by telling us a little bit about how this dichotomy or this tension has been kind of broadly conceived or viewed by historians and scholars um, to date? Yeah, excellent. Um, so I guess um, for, for much of the history of the historiography of the Enlightenment, so um, uh, you know the the scholarship um, uh, on the Enlightenment as a historical, both a philosophical and a historical phenomenon. I would say has mainly been um, uh, focused on the Enlightenment as uh, the origins of modernity, and especially the origins of um, the ideals that are central to modern liberal uh, democracies. Um, there's a you know there's a very strong um, a tradition uh, going back um, well really to the 19th century but especially the 20th century in the post Second World War II period um, um, uh, in this vein of um, looking at the Enlightenment as the source of um, uh, ideals of religious toleration. Um, freedom in the political realm, uh, anti-slavery, therefore, uh, intimately connected to that, um, notions of equality before the law, 
um, a secular human science, really, um, with all of the, the um, well, positive and negative things that came out of that. But mostly, I would say, you know, in this, this tradition that I'm talking about, it was, of course, a positive, a story of triumph, really, of, um, uh, you know, uh, humankind's exit from, um, uh, from superstition. And if only things were so simple um, and so straightforward, um, but, you know, Luckily for you know, for for me and for for many people, I think that it, it, it's it's a lot more interesting and complicated than that. Of course, of of sort of this this, this trajectory of 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 progress um, that we inherited from the Enlightenment. And so I think one of the um, um, the, the quote that you just um, uh, mentioned from my book is uh, alludes to the legacy, mostly I think of the the ch- the challenge. We could say postmodern challenge to the Enlightenment that arose in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, um, uh, in terms of looking at the Enlightenment from a very different angle and different lens, and interpreting its legacy from a very different position, uh, one of actually um, uh, control, uh, oppression. Um, this has, you know, roots in uh, older roots in uh, uh, Horkheimer and Adorno's uh, critique of the Enlightenment from the 1940s, but I think it's, it really sort of takes off uh, in, a, in a way that uh, it didn't in the 40s from sort of the, the 70s and 80s um, uh, with, uh, you know, w- uh, not only postmodernism, I would say, but just in general, sort of the democratization of uh, the humanities and the social sciences uh, after the Second World War, uh, when women and minorities start to study uh, uh, these, these issues and draw attention to the fact that what had been so often interpreted as a universalist and kind of emancipatory um, tradition, i.e., you know, the Enlightenment leading to the French Revolution, leading to uh, liberal, modern liberal democracy, that there, there's another story that can be told here, which is one of... Um, uh, the justification of the op- uh, oppression of non non white or non European peoples using uh, a scientific language uh, uh, pseudoscience obviously but you know for the uh, thinkers of the eighteenth nineteenth and twentieth centuries who were practicing this this was anything but pseudoscience it, you know it was really scientific for them um, and and so the 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 problem um, is exactly as I've just set it out. So it's, it's, it's a, to a certain extent, a historiographical one in the sense that um, we still are living with the tensions between, um, I mean, postmodernism obviously doesn't raise the hackles that it did in the, you know, the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But still, you know, we, I don't think we've come yet to really sort of integrate what we gained from that critique of the emancipatory uh, uh, tradition and legacy of the Enlightenment with um, uh, the the um, the power of the perspective of ways new forms of social control and oppression that arose from within the Enlightenment. I don't think that we've really come to appreciate sort of how we can bring these two perspectives together. And part and in part, I see my book as a as a an attempt to do just that to sort of say, okay, well, you know, we have we have now by now four decades of critique of the Enlightenment. Um, but at the same time, um, we can't ignore the uh, fundamental contribution to 
the history of human emancipation that the Enlightenment contributed to. So this is partially what I'm trying to do in the book is to to to, to honestly uh, and 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 as as thoroughly as possible take both sides into account um, uh, in a contextualist manner. And 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 that perhaps we can talk about it in, uh, uh, later. But but the contextualism is where I see um, where we can really um, make sense of the tensions that I've just laid out. And so to do that, you focus on three encyclopedias of the Enlightenment. So you have Chambers, uh, Chambers' Encyclopedia, you've got the Encyclopédie of Diderot and d'Alembert, and finally you then come to the Encyclopédie d'Ivardon of Fortunato de Felice. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to, over the course of, of this hour, talk about these in, in greater depth, but I was wondering just to begin with, if you could maybe explain a little bit about why you chose this very particular genre um, of the Enlightenment to to think about, you know, that tension that you've already talked about, but also these, you know, larger questions of, of race and humanity during the long 18th century. Right. Yeah. So um, uh, partially because these books form a genealogy that cover uh, a fairly large um, ge- geographical uh, area and a temporal uh, scope of um, uh, Enlightenment Europe. Um so uh, um, uh, the Ephraim Chambers Cyclopedia, published in London in 1728, uh, used to, in an older historiography, was considered sort of the first uh, modern encyclopedia because it was published in alphabetical order, and it was um, uh, it incorporated Newtonian science and uh, a Lockean uh, epistemology. Um, now I think you know that's that's, <laughs> that's quite up for debate, and rightly so. I mean, uh, alphabetical order has a much longer history than that, and um, um, well, we don't have to go in depth about the the uh, what was the first encyclopedia, first modern encyclopedia. But in any case, it was um, it was immensely in, uh, popular, um, and uh, I think the fact that it was a um, uh, p- formed part of the consolidation of Newtonian science is extremely important. Um, so, um, what I uh, race has a lot to do with developments from uh, uh, as it as it developed as a concept in the 18th century has a lot to do with developments and concerns that were that arose uh, because of. Um, uh, the new science and the new philosophy uh, associated, of course, very, uh, very much so with Newton. So that was, um, uh, that was, uh, 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 so, so that's for, for the racial side, but also for, in terms of thinking about equality, I mean, I think that um, uh, 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 there's also a good reason to include uh, or to, to start uh, a history with uh, uh, with ch- uh, Chambers because he explicitly addresses in his uh, preface um, uh, people who artisans, so people who are not just a part of the learned elite, that he hopes that his book will be helpful to them. And of course, you know, again, this was not completely new, or uh, but I think that uh, it was certainly uh, uh, um, quite novel for an encyclopedia to make such claims that, that, that even, um, uh, you know, not the highly educated elite uh, will, will find such a book of use. So I, I started with Chambers, and then, sorry, I guess I should also add just this, this, the, the, the very idea of, of looking at encyclopedias should probably be explained um, um, more so than I have done until, up until now, which is just that um, they, it, it allowed me to make a very broad uh, uh, topic to give it some, some scope and to make it more doable and tangible. Um, 
And of course, encyclopedias were immensely popular and important texts. Uh, uh, in uh, uh, the early modern period and um, uh, really encapsulated, uh, as other scholars have pointed out, some of the essential principles of, uh, of the Enlightenment, uh, i.e. Uh, the goal of sharing knowledge uh, openly, accessibly, uh, opening up a conversation. I think that that um, encyclopedias were instrumental uh, here in. And, and so, so um, so that's the chambers, and then uh, uh, Diderot and D'Alembert, uh, their uh, um, you know monumental encyclopédie uh, project, which started in the 1740s, and the first volume was published in 1751. Um, that actually started out as a translation of Ephraim Chambers' encyclopedia. So, um, and and uh, I had no, um, noticed in the historiography that people have a, there actually hasn't really been a, a very uh, close study of how um, um, chambers was used, or how, rather, I should uh, begin differently. So, how Diderot, D'Alembert, and their collaborators used uh, Ephraim Chambers' Encyclopedia. So, I thought that, oh, well, this is a great opportunity to then also contribute to that vein of scholarship of, of the recycling of uh, encyclopedic material, and therefore to sort of really get at, you can really do a very close analysis to see exactly what the, the authors changed uh, in the translations. And and then ask, of course, why did they change it in such a way? And, th and that'll come up, I think, in, uh, later in our discussion, because there are fascinating changes to articles pertinent to thinking about equality and race in this period. Um, uh, and, and so using encyclopedias allowed me to really do this sort of fine-grained analysis of, okay, um, given that, as other scholars have pointed out, copying is a law of lecture. Uh, lexicographical work, so the work of dictionary. So it's you know it's it's banal to say that you know dictionary definitions stay pretty um, stable over often over fairly long periods of time. Um, so then when when changes do happen, it's actually quite significant, and we should really be looking closely at why those uh, at how um, a definition changes. Um, uh, and 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 why? And then, of course, I mean, not, not only definitions, but I mean, these articles were, you know, it's, it's, they weren't dictionaries; they're, they're encyclopedias. So often, these articles, um, in the way, uh, were, were arguments. You know, there were little, uh, many essays, really, many of the the articles that I analyzed, especially in the francophone encyclopedias that I analyzed. Um, so then, uh, so then, with Diderot and D'Alembert, I could not only compare very closely with Chambers, but I could also just, um, uh, of course. Uh, tap into the you know monumental uh, moment that was mid 18th century Paris, in terms of the history of the Enlightenment as a whole, um, and really get at you know these the, the these two um, uh, uh, strands of thought that were in tension with each other, and just really look at what was going on um, um, uh, among this group of Enlightenment thinkers, the, the French encyclopedists. Um, and then the uh, choice for the Swiss one um, might be a little bit surprising, um, but it was it, it was actually a very uh, popular uh, encyclopedia in Protestant Europe. It was published in Yverdon, which is near Bern, um, and it was actually in under Bernie's, uh, in Bernie's territory um, in Switzerland. And um, um, the the editor De Felice had um, contacts with a, a publisher, or sorry, a bookseller in the Dutch Republic in The Hague, and so it actually made its way um, uh, quickly to the Dutch Republic, which had, of course, a large 
um, a minority of um, uh, French-speaking Protestants who had fled after the, the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, and and so there was a there was a, a clear market for this, and the group of encyclopedists that De Fidicia assembled around himself were all uh, basically all of them were. Um, um, Protestants were were um, um, what I've called liberal Protestants. So they were, you know, what, what they can be included in a tradition of, of Christian Protestant Christian Enlightenment. Um, and so this became a fascinating uh, um, uh, window into how religion then affects the thinking about um, uh, equality and race. So I could really, with these encyclopedias, I could I could take a, 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 a temporal scope that was sufficiently long to see interesting changes, and then also, though, um, lo look at the political, philosophical, and religious uh, uh, contours of this debate because they were, you know, very complex, of course, and it's a fascinating. Um, you know, uh, uh, jumble of of ideas and traditions, and sort of that, and, and so that the, this set of, of of primary sources allowed me to take all of this on board. And we're certainly going to come back to talking about De Felice because, you know, he and his group, I think, are often quite overlooked um, when we're talking about uh, the Enlightenment more generally. But um, as, as your book makes very clear, they play an incredibly important and, and fascinating role. Yeah. So the, the book kind of moves in its its first chapters to to you obviously move on to kind of later think about the evolution about the concept of equality and and how that looks within the the various encyclopedias but before you get to that i think you make a really fantastic contribution which is kind of thinking about that longer early modern history of discussions regarding sameness and difference and how that kind of develops into into racial thinking and language and classification and so on and I was wondering because this is an area that has had quite a quite a degree of debate, we might say, um, among historians. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little about how historians have thought about this longer history of of race and sameness and difference, um, and perhaps you know where you position the book in terms of this this longer term discussion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Um... Well, I guess for um, the the, the um, um, race started to become uh, um, a really important uh, uh, axis of analysis, I would say, in uh, for historians and other scholars. Um, yeah, I would say roughly from the 60s and 70s, especially the 70s onwards, uh, you know, linked to, as I mentioned earlier, the democratization of um, uh, higher education across the Western world. And um, of course, this brought us so much. I mean, it was, it was as I said before, that the, 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 the tradition, especially of looking at the Enlightenment, had been one of just looking at it as a universalist tradition with truly universalist uh, uh, implications, and really ignoring the um, uh, the race racialism uh, and racism of uh, uh, a wide variety of Enlightenment thinkers, and um, um, I mean not only with the Enlightenment, I mean ra race became. Um, um, such an important. I mean, you could. You, there are different genealogies, of course, you can use. I mean, obviously, there were scholars working on race long before 
this, but I'm just to let's stick to the to to the enlightenment, uh, to my area of expertise. And I think that when it comes to early modern history and the enlightenment, then um, uh, from the 1970s onwards, you see uh, that the concept of othering just in general, but of course is very much related to race, obviously, becomes immensely uh, important for um, um, making sense of how the Western canon developed and just how European history as such uh, uh, developed. So um, um, there, you know, there are numerous uh, studies that, that, that uh, uh, you know, make clear the, um, um, the Eurocentric assumptions that 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 went into uh, so much of uh, um, uh, you know well, well, you know the, the, the canon let's say uh, of of uh, European thought um, and um, and so that that's you know that that's been immensely uh, uh, important scholarship and for the way that I see um, my uh, uh, book in this trajectory is that we've um, um, you know, this has been immensely enriching, but we shouldn't forget that equality isn't something that we can just take for granted. Um, this is something that my uh, advisor, Sip Sturman, um, uh, really uh, argues forcefully in his book, The Invention of Humanity, Equality uh, and Cultural Difference in World History, um, is that um, um, the, 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 the underlying assumption uh, in much scholarship, uh, let's say in the othering tradition, is that uh, uh, equality is the sort of default position. And I think that's very much true. It should be the case, of course, that equality is the default position. And, um, but we can't take that for granted. We have to see how equality is not an obvious feature of the natural or the social and cultural world, how it had to be conjured up. It had to be uh, uh, invented and fought for this uh, uh, in, in, in various ways and in various times. And so, um, um, what what I try to uh, uh, do in in the book is I, I draw on uh, Sturman scholarship to, uh, to to highlight the fact that um, uh, one of the things that made equality so different and exciting in uh, the 18th century Enlightenment is that it starts to gain the benefit of the doubt that it um, um, that for a variety of very complex reasons. Um, the the default assumption, rather than being one of basic and essential inequality, starts to be one of equality. And the inequalities that are so inherent in the social uh, and cultural world call out for greater attention and greater uh, uh, um, uh, explanation. And so this is sort of the fundamental shift, I think, that, that makes the one of the fundamental shifts that makes the Enlightenment so fascinating to study is sort of why this happened and how this happened. And, um, um, and, 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 it does, and, and again, it doesn't exclude ways of thinking about inequality or ways of or, or systems of oppression. So that's, that's very important to, to emphasize here. Um, but the, uh, this is sort of how I uh, uh, position the, the book in um, uh, what you've just mentioned about the, um, uh, the longer history of using race as a category of analysis in, in relationship to uh, um, um, equality, uh, race, and othering, this sort of this, this complex. And so 
you move then to talk of, about the first of the encyclopedias, and this is Ephraim Chambers' Cyclopedia of 1728. You've mentioned it um, kind of very briefly, but I was wondering if you could maybe give us a little bit of background to the cyclopedia and, and what specifically were its aims. You know, you've speak, spoken about it being this, um, I guess, kind of almost apogee of, of uh, enlightenment um, kind of encyclopedism. But but what specifically was the cyclopedia kind of aiming to do and, and how did that manifest itself in its pages? Yeah. So I think most importantly for Ephraim Chambers was uh, uh, Newtonian science. So he really wanted to make Newtonian science uh, accessible to as wide an audience as possible um, as a, a worldview and also as a um, um, even as something that started to have t- uh, technological uh, very great technological implications. So, um, so we're talking. So he he was actually um, um, didn't come from a from a very wealthy family, um, and um, um, was um, uh, uh, apprenticed to a, a bookseller and globe maker in London. And that's the and he in in London he was connected to a um, uh, uh, actually the, a group of Freemasons. So so this is sort of you know the the time period in which uh, Freemasonry starts to become an important part of the history of the Enlightenment as you know a sphere of, of social sociability um, uh, outside of of the church and state, um, uh, which had a obviously you know very uh, uh, egalitarian uh, aspects to it. So, um, in terms of you know the the membership to a certain extent, uh, you know we shouldn't overdo that, but uh, but at least you know um, uh, it had a had a fairly broad uh, uh, membership in terms of socioeconomic status of, of its members, and um, uh, even in some cases religious uh, background, so that it brought together people of uh, various religious uh, stripes. Um, and so this is the world. He was actually the the master of the Grand Lodge in London for for a time, and it is through that um, milieu that he came into contact, for example, with Benjamin Franklin. Most likely, we we don't have, uh, uh, I think, correspondence here, but we have indirect evidence in the sense that Benjamin Franklin used some of, used some of Ephraim Chambers' articles in his Pennsylvania Gazette uh, back in um, uh, the colonies uh, of the Americas, and. Um, um, so, so this is the the milieu from which he's coming, and the book uh, was was very popular. So he, uh, you know, he it was it was a longer tra- there was a longer tradition of uh, uh, books that were aimed at, let's say, a broader audience than just the learned elite. So um, uh, Harris's uh, Lexicon Technicum, I think, if I remember correctly, is the uh, one of the important predecessors of Ephraim Chambers. So this was also sort of a handy summary of um, developments, uh, new developments, um, and um, in, in, you know, in technology and science. And um, this, is, this is a really important uh, part, I think, of what, how we should understand uh, uh, Ephraim Chambers' encyclopedia uh, was that it wasn't a, con- a confident summa of all of human knowledge, as many encyclopedias, you know, going you know, back into uh, the Middle Ages were, or at least claimed to be and hoped to be. I think he was very aware of the fact that you know this was a, um, a something that a work that would be superseded as uh, a, a new knowledge is gained, uh, as you know, 
very much a part of the Lockean and Newtonian traditions. Um, and so that's, uh, um, that's what I think one of the most important uh, aspects of, of the work. Also, of course, the, the financial aspects shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't go unmentioned in the sense that it was, it was, he obviously, you know, it was published at a time when um, uh, the book trade was obviously very commercialized. And so he had hoped, he hoped obviously to make a profit and that he very much did. Um, it was a very popular book. So it was published uh, by subscription um, as English books were published already from the 17th century. And it was, it would, it, uh, after the first edition, um, uh, publishers were assured of their sales. So they didn't even require a subscription list because it was just so popular. Um, um, Italian, uh, uh, an Italian translation was published quite quickly. A French translation, of course, began in the 1740s, obviously, uh, with Diderot and d'Alembert. And um, um, yeah, I mean, it would, part of how we can make sense of the content of that book is this milieu of um, um, uh, uh, the early Enlightenment um, a sphere of uh, a growing civil society centered around the, the, the Masonic lodges uh, in which, you know, religious affiliation is, is very much uh, in transformation such that Ephraim Chambers is most, was most likely a deist. And um, he very much promotes religious toleration, um, which as I argue in the book is, is connected to, to uh, a certain conception of equality. And then you go on to explore quite a variety of ways in which the cyclopedia engaged with ideas of equality more generally. But I think one of the really important examples that you draw attention to is how the word, and I quote here, the word Negro is used. And this is not just in the article entry specifically entitled Negro, but also throughout um, and in other articles as well. And I was wondering if you could maybe expand on this a little bit about what this use um, of this particular word tells us about ideas of race and equality at this, as you kind of identify, very early stage of the Enlightenment and as you've just you know, revealed to us, you know, this kind of context relating to masonry, um, perhaps also the financial endeavors um, and so on. So this, I think this would be a really interesting example to unpick if, if you would do us uh, so kindly. Of course, yeah. So, yeah. So the the article um, uh, uh, Negro is interesting because it um, reveals, I think, the two traditions or discourses uh, uh, in which this word and concept uh, became uh, uh, of of greater importance throughout the 18th century. Um, uh, and of course, the first thing to, to say here is the context of slavery uh, and the transatlantic slave trade and the growth of slave societies in the New World. Because the first thing that he says uh, in that article, Negro, is that um, uh, he says a kind of slave. Uh, so the this is in both English and French, uh, starting already in the second half of the 17th century, these slave and Negro start to become synonyms in a way that they never were before. Uh, and so um, this is obviously, uh, you know, indicative of the grow fast growing um, uh, importance of uh, the institution of slavery to the European economy and then the effects that it has on culture and thought, etc. And so, so this is so this is very very clear. You know, this is reflected in uh, Chambers' encyclopedia. Uh, um, so the language of so of commerce and the status of 
uh, black peoples as chattel uh, in uh, uh, you know the European worldview um, in it, to, a gr to a growing extent in the European worldview throughout the 18th century. Um, and alongside that, I also point out to, point to the uh, uh, natural historical discourse. So the making sense of blackness uh, and whiteness, but whiteness was always almost always considered just the the unspoken standard, and so blackness for you know also largely because of the institution of slavery starts to become. A, a phenomenon that uh, European thinkers think uh, needs to be uh, explained uh, uh, in physiological uh, terms and in natural historical terms, and so these are the two discourses uh, that that um, uh, that I point to to explain the growing uh, significance of the term. Um, um, and what's interesting, though, is that the the these discourses develop alongside one another in such a way that um, uh, uh, th that the this the let's say the natural historical exploration and explanation of blackness does it does not in any simple one to one way develop as an, a justification of slavery. So it's important to mention because of what we'll talk about with the Francophone encyclopedias, this discourse is much more highly developed, or this field of thought, rather, I should say, rather the discourse the, of natural history, the natural history of humanity, not only the natural history of black people or blackness, but just the natural history of humanity uh, as a whole, is much more highly developed. But those thinkers, some of those thinkers are, are quite fiercely anti-slavery. So, so this is just something to, important to mention. But the Nonetheless, I think with Chambers and then with the uh, supplement to Chambers that I also used, which was published in 1753, you can see that the uh, discourse of commerce and the status of black people as chattel, uh, uh, you know, in the slave system, that that only becomes more uh, uh, more prominent um, at this at the same time that new experiments are being performed um, to uh, investigate the cause of blackness. So these things very much develop in tandem. And um, as I said, that, you know, it's a complex relationship between them, but we definitely have to consider them together. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And so, as you've just mentioned, you then move to talk about well, what is perhaps one of the most famous products of the Enlightenment, and that's the Encyclopédie of, of Diderot and d'Alembert. And, you know, many, as you've already also have mentioned, will know that, you know, the Encyclopédie was begun as a translation of Chambers' Encyclopedia. But as you then explore in the book, it was very much more than that. And it vastly expanded yeah. on Chambers' original project, on the articles, on the, on the aims and ambitions and so on. And one of the core developments that you really tackle in the book is, is about the evolution of ideas of, of natural equality and rights um, within the Encyclopédie. Mm -hmm. And in short, you say that this is the transformation of equality into a political concept. 
Yeah. I'm wondering if you could maybe, you know, tell us a little bit about this shift and, and why that's such an important one to think about, this transformation of equality into a political concept. Sure. Yeah, of course. So um, I think this is important, I think, because equality has such a long history, you know, obviously going back uh, to the ancients. And what I found so fascinating is that equality could be um, um stated as a fact, but it had very few consequences for many thinkers throughout the Western tradition uh, from antiquity. Uh, it had very few consequences, real political or social consequences. So I found this just so fascinating that it could be stated as a fact and really, you know, uh, in quite forceful terms. But then um, uh, the thinker or set of thinkers or uh, or the text uh, could go on to uh, take the institution of slavery, for example, as a perfectly justifiable institution. And I found this just so fascinating that, that, that you could state equality as a fact and even to a certain extent as a, as a good uh, and then go on to um, uh, accept uh, uh, slavery. So what I found, what I wanted to explain partially in the book is, is why uh, only in certain times and places does this, the, the statement all human beings are created equal have real egalitarian political consequences in certain, in, in certain times and places. And, and, I, and, and this is what I see, uh, why I see the uh, uh, Enlightenment and, the, and more specifically Diderot and d'Alembert's Encyclopédie to be important, not because it was totally a thoroughgoingly uh, uh, egalitarian text, whatever that might mean. I mean, that's obviously an anachronism, but, but the point that I wanted to make in that chapter is that you see that equality is used in ways that it was never used in European reference works before. Namely, in that um, uh, uh, Jocourt, for example, um, Louis de Jocourt, uh, the most prolific encyclopedist, um, he writes in his article, Natural Equality, he draws on Pufendorf, Samuel Pufendorf, the 17th century natural law thinker. And Pufendorf is one of these thinkers that, that fits into what I've just said about a thinker who, you know, in his natural law texts, he's very clear that we are all created equal in the image of God. Um, and um, uh, there are uh, certain consequences that result from that. We have to uh, uh, approach each other as uh, equal. Um, but he then uh, goes on uh, to write that hered even hereditary slavery is something that doesn't violate uh, uh, natural equality. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and what's so fascinating is that for a thinker like Chocourt, it does violate natural equality, the institution of slavery. So he's clear. So in the article Natural Equality, he doesn't actually uh, uh, specifically address like transatlantic chattel slavery. He does so in other articles, but in that he 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 does address though the profound inequalities of his 18th century you know contemporary French society, in the sense that he says you know um, um, it is the violation of this principle that leads to the groaning of the vast majority of people under extreme position uh, uh, conditions of extreme poverty, and it's you know it's very clear that he's critical of those conditions. He, 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 you know, granted, he does say, okay, don't accuse me of being a, an extreme supporter of absolute equality. And, and many, many historians have, have pointed to that to sort of um, highlight the, the, the limitations that Enlightenment thinkers 
uh, placed on equality. And I see this quite differently, precisely because um, this article was the only article, uh, one, or one of the earliest articles to tackle equality as not just a mathematical and logical concept, but as a, a concept uh, uh, in the social and political spheres. Um, and so, so the very presence of it, I find just fascinating. And then to sort of see what he does with it. So yes, he does have this caveat of, you know, don't accuse me of being a supporter of absolute equality. But he then says, I will leave it to the reader to decide what other consequences follow from the concept of natural equality. So it's fascinating that he's 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 very attuned to the fact that there's a certain logic within equality that allows there's sort of an expansionary logic to it, and he's very aware of that. And to an extent that I think you know Pufendorf absolutely was not, because we know from other scholarship that um, uh, he actually lamented Pufendorf even the fact that slavery had been abolished in Europe. So you know it's just fascinating that that the um, um, you know what we it, and, and we of course then should try to understand why Pufendorf thought the way that he thought, and I think that that has to do with a certain conception of autonomy that there are certain groups of people who are incapable of autonomous thought and action, uh, uh, and 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 what is interesting is that by the time we get to Jokur and his uh, collaborators, uh, some of them not all of them of course, uh, but um, because we do find pro-slavery articles in the Encyclopedia, but the main thrust of sort of the core contributors is one of politicizing equality. And um, uh, uh, this is what I, uh, this is what I wanted to, to highlight in, in, uh, in, in, in namely in, re in re uh, regard to uh, slavery uh, and anti-slavery thought, and in regard to um, uh, gender to a certain extent and uh, the idea of a, uh, a sexual hierarchy and um, uh, religious toleration uh, and, and political absolutism, that equality plays an essential role in all of these realms, in critiquing all of these these traditions. I think what's so interesting um, in this chapter in particular and about the Encyclopédie and its contributors more generally is that there doesn't seem to be this coherent philosophical standpoint on these issues. In fact, there does seem to be quite a plurality of views regarding yeah. equality, and these are these are kind of accepted. It's, it's, it seems to be okay within the encyclopedia that there would be this plurality of views. So I was wondering if you might perhaps give us an example of um, of where this plurality manifests itself. Perhaps, I, I don't know, maybe the articles of Le Romain uh, potentially, mm -hmm. and, and perhaps explain a little bit about what this dissonance means in terms of, you know, how we actually can read and interpret the encyclopedia when it comes to issues like race, like equality, and so on. Right, yeah. So, so you're absolutely right. I mean, that's, that's part of what makes it so fascinating is this eclecticism. Um, and then, I, you know, um, uh, sort of funnily enough, Diderot, one of the most famous uh, articles is Diderot's uh, article uh, eclecticism, so, so that's, that's quite uh, um, uh, interesting. Um, but um, yeah, so there's a, a you know veritable cacophony of voices when it comes to these these issues of race and equality, and that's part of part of what makes it so interesting to to study. And to to give a very specific example, I think you're absolutely right that uh, Le Romain, so Jean Baptiste Pierre Le Romain, if I remember correctly, uh, is the uh, was the author of a number of articles um, on uh, slavery, 
um, uh, and uh, the New World, uh, various aspects of colonial society. Um, if I remember correctly, he wrote the article on um, uh, sugar ref refineries. Um, but m in my uh, book, most important, I engage with him because he wrote one of the entries uh, for a negra, a Negro, so there are four entries under the headword uh, 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 Negro, and um, uh, uh, he wrote the article uh, uh, Negro Considered as, uh, as Slaves in the Colonies of America, uh, of the Americas, is the, the full, uh, the, the full headword of that, uh, of that article, and as you can, you know, obviously glean from the headword, it was a, um, um and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an astonishing, um, just uh, um, a racist uh, summary of uh, colonial uh, slave masters' um, um, uh, um, perceptions of sub-Saharan African peoples. And it's just a, uh, pro it provides an overview of uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the various regions of Africa where, uh, uh, enslaved peoples came from, um, uh, the ethnicities, um, and, uh, the, uh, you know, he, he goes into character, the characteristics of various, uh, sub-Saharan African ethnicities and what they, uh, ex uh, according to him, excelled at or what their main, you know, what their main characteristics, uh, were. And so it's just a really, um, you know, uh, confrontational um, a piece in which you see sort of the centrality of slavery to um, uh, European culture and the development of, you know, states really uh, 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 in in this time period. Um, uh, and, and what's fascinating is that this exists alongside a thinker like Chocour, who was so vehemently anti-slavery. Uh, in addition to Diderot uh, uh, and a handful of others, but especially Jocourt and Diderot, um, that they uh, that these you know these two uh, 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 perspectives that are so at odds with one another are in the same encyclopedia. And the way that scholars have you know it's it's scholars seem to in general this is sort of a bit oversimplifying, but scholars seem to have approached this in kind of one of two ways. They either pick one side and they, they point to the Le Romain articles and say, well, this is indicative of how just pro-slavery the Enlightenment was. Or they pick Jocourt and they say, well, look, this is, you know, this is immensely important. This is how, this is indicative of how just how important the Enlightenment was in the anti-slavery movement. And I think that, you know, both, obviously, there's, you know, both are correct. And so that, that's what I, I try to do is to, 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 to really bring these together and to look and, 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 and then my point is, is not a wholly original one because other scholars have made it, but, but the point is, is that um, a confrontation was starting to take place in a way that it never had before in terms of, you know, the place of slavery uh, uh, in uh, society and in politics, that this started to become an essential uh, a point of, of essential contestation by, you know, um, started to started to become uh, in the second half of the 18th century, especially, and then obviously, you know, only grow uh, towards the end, especially from the 1780s onwards. This really becomes um, um, uh, an open confrontation, obviously, and and I think that the encyclopédie, uh, I put it into the 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 history of the problem, you know, the beginnings of the problematization in European thought of this this uh, uh, you know institution that was so important. Um, uh, 
um, for a variety of reasons. And, and that also just reminds me of one other point that I want to make here, which is the tension in Enlightenment thought between the goal to, to um, um, uh, serve a, a, a useful institutional administrative function, uh, the fact that you know slavery was so embedded by this time in uh, uh, European commerce and uh, uh, politics, even to a certain extent, um, that um, 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 you know we can't uh, we have to also include that in a history of thinking about slavery and anti-slavery. The fact that Enlightenment thinkers were also contributing to this growing uh, state apparatus of serving a useful kind of state function at the same time that they were also critiquing uh, 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 many aspects of the tradition into, into which they were, you know, contributing. Um, so this is, this is, I think, something that, that is, is really uh, essential to understanding some of the tension in Enlightenment thought, these two sides of that, of, of sort of serving this useful function and then critiquing systems of oppression, which they, you know, um, to a greater or lesser extent did, uh, depending on who you look at. And I suppose some of those critiques really come to a head then in your final chapter where you turn to look at the final of your encyclopedias, uh, which is the, I suppose, in many respects, lesser known Encyclopédie de Verdun, which was uh, produced by the Italian Protestant emigre Fortunato de Felice. And I was wondering if you might start by just kind of explaining how or why the Yverdon Encyclopedia really differed from its French counterpart, um, and maybe how this was actually kind of manifesting itself in the new edition, perhaps in, in, a, in a number of the articles or perhaps in the tone of some of the, the views on equality. Yeah, of course. So um, the, uh, the most important thing um, to mention about the Encyclopédie d'Iverdon is its closeness to the uh, Paris original, um, in the sense that it, st it started out as a re-edition, a reworking re by De Felice and his, uh, and his collaborators, but De Felice was the, you know, the, the, the sole editor. Um, and um, I say that it's closest because they use the system um, um, of uh, a notation to indicate to the reader what they had done to the original. So they put an N beside articles that were completely new, uh, and R, excuse me, beside articles that were uh, uh, altered. Um, and um, sometimes they would put a, an asterisk uh, at the end of an article when they would add a new paragraph or a new section. And the fact that this system worked um, indicates that you know there was a great overlap between. Um, uh, the Diderot de la Encyclopédie and the Encyclopédie uh, d'Iverdon. Um, uh, you know, that said, the, some of the, many of the lengthier articles, uh, men, most of them were, were reworked uh, or, you know, there were completely new articles added. And when I say reworked, they were like completely different. They were just, they were, they were absolutely, the original was absolutely discarded and, and a completely different and new article was, was um, written. And, um, um, in terms of sort of the different kind of tone and flavor of the work, it's very much in a Protestant, um, uh, Enlightenment Protestant tradition. So, um, uh, uh, you know, there, there, there's been great scholarship on um, various strands of the Christian Enlightenment, and I drew, I profited immensely from that. And um, it, it can, you know, th this encyclopedia can very much be placed in that uh, tradition. So uh, in the sense that they try to, they, 
they attempt to create a rational um, Christianity that is um, respectful of uh, uh, other cultures and traditions, and that is more in uh, uh, that is that is in tune with some of the key developments in uh, Enlightenment thought. So they don't um, shy away from um, uh, engaging with uh, religious and cultural difference. Uh, and and they very much approach it in an open way. So it's not, you know, it's not an overly um, uh, evangelical encyclopedia or something. I mean, it's, it's uh, for example, uh, De Felice himself, in one of his articles, he actually writes that missionaries, um, um, sh- you know, they actually should not be really active in the non-Christian world because people have to decide themselves when they are, uh, kind of ready to uh, uh, accept uh, the gospel, he, he essentially says, and um, uh, this you know so, so this is very you know indicative of the enlight- enlightenment approach in terms of the respect for basic autonomy and cultural difference. And so that that's you know an essential part of the work, but it, it inflects the um, it's nonetheless very important in the Christian tradition in the sense that. Um, for the Encyclopédie Diverdon in a way that it wasn't for many of Diderot and d'Alembert's, uh, uh, well, themselves and, and their, their collaborators, at least some of the, some of the key ones, um, in the sense that they, for example, with, when it comes to equality, Jocourt doesn't mention scripture at all. Whereas, uh, it is in his article, Natural Equality, whereas De Fiducia, um, has a, uh, an entire section on what Christian scripture uh, tells us about uh, equality, i.e., we all are created in God's image. Uh, we all have a rational soul. We all have souls uh, um, uh, and a rational one. And you know this. And so, uh, and then it, it's sort of interesting. Sort of the the. I think he he concludes, if I remember correctly, that article with something like, "It's nice to see that the principles of natural philosophy um, uh, correspond so well to those of the gospel." So it's very much a work trying to be, you know, a work of of um, synthesis in terms of um, using some of the more secular human sciences as they're developing in the, in the 18th century, you know, con- um, combining that with uh, a Christian tradition. Um, and so that so that's very you know that's very clear in a, in a variety of, of articles. But nonetheless, you know, as I said, the, the, the reason why it's an enlightened enlightened Christian tradition is because it's um, um, you know it, it takes autonomy seriously. It's very um, uh, 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 concerned with. Uh, toleration. So toleration is is a key good. So despite the their desire to uh, consolidate Protestantism, um, you know there's there's a very there's a very strong defense of of uh, religious toleration. And it's really interesting this kind of comparison between the the two francophone um, encyclopedies here because I think something that you really draw attention to is you say that, you know, in Yverdon, they were also relying, for example, on Buffon's natural history in terms of racial classification, um, especially when it comes to sub-Saharan Africans, you know, much in the same way that Diderot was doing um, in Paris. But what's so fascinating is that you say that in spite of this similarity, in spite of using that same kind of natural history, 
history underpinning, um, the Swiss actually presented a much more forceful abolitionist argument um, throughout the Encyclopédie. And I was wondering maybe if you could explain this difference, you know, how this came about and perhaps some of the repercussions of this particular reworking, I suppose, of, uh, of Buffon's classification. Sure, yeah. So um, uh, the main reason that the um, Encyclopédie Divergent is more abolitionist than uh, the Parisian original is the fact that uh, De Felice incorporates uh, many passages, lengthy passages from the Histoire de Zazen. And uh, funnily enough, many passages written by Diderot himself. <laughs> and so um, uh, uh, this is, I, I, I uh, you know, as, as far as I can tell, um, uh, the, the most forceful um, uh, anti-slavery passages in the work, uh, the Encyclopédie Diverson, uh, are from, um, uh, from um, the Histoire des Deux Ends. Um, so, of course, that, you know, uh, uh, well-known bestseller uh, uh, authored by uh, uh, Reynal, um, uh, Guillaume Thomas Reynal, but uh, with, well, for uh, official or so, you know, to the public, it was a sole authored work, but we now know that it was actually a multi-authored work of which, you know, um, Diderot wrote, I believe, somewhere around a quarter of the uh, sort of what's considered sort of standard edition um, from 1780 from Geneva. Um, uh, but um, it, there were a number of other philosophers who, who contributed. And um, uh, so, yeah, so there, there's this, there's, um, this is what's so fascinating, I guess, about looking at uh, anti-slavery uh, discourse and race is that uh, a race becomes more uh, uh, solidified as a concept and as a category at the same time that um, the anti-slavery you know, movement is gaining steam for example, in the Histoire des Deux Andes, and then also, therefore, in um, the Encyclopédie Diverton. Um, and this is part of my what I try to show in my book, is that this leads to an interesting conclusion, which is that, you know, race cannot be only understood as a um, um, response or a justification of inequality. Um, and I, I, I emphasize this because in the historiography on race, um, you see really often this, uh, the argument that the, um, uh, the origins of race are in um, uh, the tradition, the uh, uh, oppressive tradition to uh, justify continuing inequalities. And I don't deny that that is uh, a part of uh, the, st the story that is to be told about the invention of race. Because and that's in the end, and that that race was used in such a way um, uh, uh, that that is absolutely you know um, indisputable. But what I try to show in my book is that the fact that the same thinkers who were at the forefront of the anti-slavery movement, like Diderot and like the Encyclopédie Divergent uh, uh, contributors, um, they were the fact that they were also contributing to to a, a racialist uh, uh, discourse means that we have to be look more carefully. It can't, race cannot just be um, uh, an ex post facto uh, explanation for uh, inequality and uh, oppression. There must be more going on here. And so that's, that's what I try to, to show in my book is that um, 
um, uh, race was, of course, undoubtedly uh, imbued with Eurocentric aesthetic and moral judgments from the get-go. But in the pre-revolutionary world, it wasn't yet a uh, an explanatory factor in an, an, an all-encompassing uh, inegalitarian system. Uh, and, and then I, and I, I think that has, a, I think, a fairly straightforward reason, which is that the revolutions hadn't happened yet. So equality didn't, you know, the, obviously the, the, the late 18th century uh, revolutions. So, uh, well, the American Revolution, of course, was already underway, but, but the, um, um, you know, the, the really uh, uh, momentous ones of the, the French and Haitian uh, uh, hadn't happened yet. And so equality, what, for Europeans, equality wasn't yet given constitutional status in a state. Um, and um, and so I try, to, therefore I try to show that that race was res partially responding to different um, problems uh, than, than um, um, uh, a justification for inequality uh, in the sense that uh, uh, race was also a part of uh, a worldview in which uh, the explanation for the long durée history, the, the deep natural history of humanity, had entered a wholly new uh, philosophical and intellectual world uh, in which the Bible no longer held the final word. And then, so that's the, 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 the field in which I try to, to position it, that, that we have to take seriously the fact that Diderot, Buffon, and many of their, um, uh, their collaborators were uh, materialist thinkers. So, um, and, and this is an essential part of thinking about race is that, uh, 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 that um, um, although race is not a biological category, uh, absolutely not, uh, the explanation of human physical diversity in a natural history of humanity that was told outside of the biblical frame framework, this is how we can make sense of uh, enlightenment racial classification and why it, it could stand, uh, you know, alongside ideas of basic equality and rights in the same enlightenment mind as in a thinker like Diderot and um, uh, to a lesser extent the Iverdon encyclopedists. Uh, because although, you know, they were not absolutely not materialist thinkers, I think by this time they also would have, they were, they, they used Buffon and other uh, enlightenment naturalists to tell uh, a story of the history of humanity, even outside of the biblical framework. I mean, by this time, you know, they had left a literal, a literal interpretation of um, the Pentateuch. And you do really pick up then in the conclusion on, on a lot of these themes that you've just, just mentioned. And I think it's worth drawing attention to, to something that you say here, where you say, although race was an enlightenment language of difference and sometimes of inequality, it did not yet serve as an explanation for inequality. And rather than you go on to argue that conjectural history was actually a, a much more powerful framework for inequality um, in the examples that you've looked at. Um, and then you obviously kind of go on to think a little bit more broadly about how this then goes on to give way to racial theories and languages and classification um, in a much more kind of strict scientific way. Yeah. We've come to our hour and because <laughs> to, to leave you with an afternoon free of having to, to kind of talk about your book, I wonder if I might press you to talk about, well, what comes next? Where does the book lead? Um, what is kind of the, the flavor of research that, you know, this exploration has led you to, to kind of think about now and where you might be going with it in the future? Right. No, thank you. I, um, 
Um, well, I'm actually not sick of uh, the Enlightenment or equality uh, uh, or race, but I'm, I'm mainly sticking with uh, with equality. I'm not sick of those things yet, but what because what I'm looking at now is um, uh, equality as a social practice. Uh, so the book uh, led me, you know, it's a very um, uh, intellectual, contextualist, or at least I hope it's a uh, uh, contextualist history, intellectual history, you know, that's what I <laughs> intended it to be. And, um, but in the process of writing it, I became, I mean, I absolutely love intellectual history, but I became a bit um, uh, unsatisfied with um, the um, capacity of intellectual history to, to give indications as to why uh, equality started to matter more to 18th century Europeans in a way that it didn't in previous uh, centuries or generations. And so I, um, and I think that has a lot to do with the rise of capitalism and uh, new, uh, 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 well, the rise of the public sphere, which are, of course, are topics that have been, especially the public sphere has been, has been, uh, uh, um, uh, explored uh, at, uh, at great length by many uh, very uh, scholars uh, over the past few decades. But what I hope uh, to what I hope is at least somewhat new of what I'm doing is is to merge the intellectual with the sphere of social practices and to look at how equality was not just an idea but intimately bound up with new social practices. Uh, uh, so what I'm doing is I'm looking at um, cafes and theaters in 18th century Paris and trying to re reconstruct uh, uh, the ways in which um, uh, uh, equal the, the sort of uh, acts of subordination, let's say, that were inherent in a, the society of orders that was the Ancien Regime, how those kinds of daily acts became uh, problematic and why. And um, um, and so that's what I'm, um, yeah, that's what I'm investigating now and, and I'm really enjoying it. Oh, well, I hope we might have you back on the podcast to talk about that um, in the near future. Um, the book, listeners, is The Colour of Equality, Race and Common Humanity in Enlightenment Thought, published by University of Pennsylvania Press in 2021. Devin Vartia, thank you so much for being on the network today. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, it, it was it was my pleasure.